The restaurant industry has been fighting for survival over the last two years, and our greatest resource in this fight has been our people. The men and women who have poured, served, seated, greeted, and worked tirelessly to keep our industry going. Yelp for Restaurants believes now is the perfect time to recognize their efforts and give back to those that have given us so much with the creation of the Servies, a first-of-its-kind set of awards celebrating front-of-house workers. Winners receive a beautifully designed Servies trophy, a free pair of snib shoes, and a $3,000 tip. That's right. $3,000 in their pocket. Know someone deserving of a service award? Maybe they work at your restaurant. Visit theservies.com today and nominate them for a chance to win. Let's support the service industry together. Do so by nominating someone today. No purchase necessary. Must be 18 or older and a U.S. resident. Eight nominated contest winners will receive a prize of $3,000. Nominations must be submitted between August 3rd, 2022 and August 24th, 2022. See official rules available at theservies.com. Now here we go. Every time you post an Instagram thing, put fifty dollars on it. Put a hundred bucks on it. Every time you do a TikTok, and believe me, you're gonna get that money back tenfold. And that's how we started. We started with a few hundred dollars, and now we're in the four, five hundred thousand dollar year range for all our brands, just on SEO, Facebook, Instagram, and ways. And I believe we're making millions off it. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. If we keep doing the same things in the same ways, we'll end up with the same results. That's why today's guest, Stratus Moforgan, is such an interesting case study. Stratus has done business differently from the beginning, and over the last 30 years, it's made a dramatic impact in how successful he's become. Today, we unpack the lessons to be learned from both his successes and his failures on his path of industry disruption. I knew that school was not for me. I knew that by the young age of about six, seven years old. And I knew that I was in my happy place around strangers inside my dad's restaurants. And then when I went to the Fulton Fish Market, my dad used to bring me to closings. He had about 14 restaurants. He would actually bring me to closings when, by the early age of eight, nine years old. He involved me with every part of his business world. And when you see what real world is, it's hard to go to school. I even used to look at the cops. I used to come into my classroom in first grade and tell me how we have to be righteous students and righteous people and community members. I mean, while I'm in the Fulton Fish Market watching a guy put an ice pick in an 18-wheeler because he didn't pay the parking fee for the mob tax. And the cops are sitting there and saying, yeah, you got to pay. I'm just like, really? So if you go along those lines, you'll understand that school is just like an imposter for me. School is just a joke. School is not reality. And it just kept on compounding as I went through middle school and high school. You know, restaurants were for me, every part of it, from buying to operating, to designing, to developing, to creating. And when I say creating, every restaurant I've ever done, I've never done the status quo. My Greek diner had a three-star New York Times chef. My new Greek restaurant is basically the first one with all strictly wood burning. Everything is going to be wood burning cooking. And when I opened up my chop house, remember the chop house menu hasn't been changed since the Irish brought it over to New York, to Brooklyn, actually, in the 1850s. It's, you know, cream of spinach, baked potato, mutton chop, lamb chop, pork chop. It's like, you know, it's the same stuff. 
So when I married Chinese food into a chop house, because when you ask my 17 Chinese chefs, what do you think of when I hear chop house? They're like chop suey, chop sticks. You know, the chopper is a respected position under the sous chef in the kitchen. And I'm just like, you know what? Wow. I think lamb chop, pork chop. And my Chinese chef doesn't even think of that. And that's how we mixed and mashed the two cultures together and created a Brooklyn chop house. It's basically dim sum and chops. I want to talk about success and failure and how you perceive them. As a young kid, adolescent, young man, watching your father's business grow and contract over time, how did it affect how you saw success, how you saw failure? What does winning look like? Contract is a good word. Because as my dad was like the first spokesman for American Express in the 70s, he was he had nine restaurants by 1971. We, you know, we moved to a big house. Everything was going great. And then you know what? As great as we were by 1978, there was a huge controversy with one of his managers stealing credit cards. And guess what? His whole empire started to collapse. So I learned that too. I learned that you never feel safe. You need to be a bit paranoid in our industry because there's so many ways to fail and so few ways to succeed. And you know, and now you have the modern stuff of like communist leaders shutting down our restaurant because they say they're following the science of a pandemic, which is all crock of bull. And then you got the labor lawsuits prior to the pandemic, which were our pandemic before the pandemic. You know, you had every restaurant being sued for labor laws and sexual harassment and this and that. And you pivot, right? When this stuff happens, and I got caught up in it when I owned Philippe Chow. Now every employee signs like a six-inch document stating what they understand. It's like preemptive strikes. And these are the things that, you know, I've learned from my dad. My dad was incredibly successful, experienced failure, incredibly successful again, experienced a setback. And that's our industry. And you know what? We have enough of it without these politicians who never ran a lemonade stand involving themselves in small business when they've never created jobs. Us small business owners are the only ones that create jobs. And when you have politicians dictating on what small business should be or shouldn't be, or when it should open and when it should close and this and that, that's a really bad recipe for disaster because these politicians have never run a day of a small business in their life. They do not know what a sleepless night looks like. When we look at our parents, especially like as a young man looking to his father, and I did the same thing with my dad, he was an independent sales rep. I looked at him with such awe, like it was so amazing that he could do all of the things that he did. And as I got older and as I got better at my own job, you begin to take a more critical perspective of your parents and their performance as business owners. When you started out on your own and you broke free and you opened your first place, what mistakes did your father make that you had committed to yourself that you weren't going to make? Hire family. That was it. I was not hiring family. But you know what? I got to tell you, Josh, I'm guilty of it because even I did hire family. And what makes me kind of proud is the two young kids that were my cousins that started under me when they were 12 and 13. One is director of operations of Scarpetta. The other one's director of operations of Kima. They all make big salaries. And these kids were my barbacks, my busboys. And you know what? Their father was just a city worker, which is very important and nothing to belittle. They wanted to be in the restaurant entertainment business. But I always put those two together. And, you know, I'm proud that I did take a chance on a couple of relatives. And you know what? They're doing amazing right now. But I had a couple of other ones that I gave jobs to, and we don't talk anymore. So yeah. the idea is to try to keep family at a distance. Family is really, what it does, it, it softens you. It basically takes you off your guard. When I run my restaurants right now, I don't even want the hostesses. 
the female host to even know my name. You know, when they come up to me about an issue, I say, why are you even talking to me? Go to your GM or go to human resources or go to your DO. Do not come to me. That's not how I was brought up. My dad was used to have waiters and waitresses at my birthday party where there was 100 people in my house, you know, a 10-year-old birthday party. They were like extended family members. And unfortunately, with our industry, we can't do that anymore. We can't treat staff like their family because you're just opening yourself up. So many vulnerabilities there. And especially if you're successful, you're just the target for these ambulance chasing lawyers that just want a nuisance check. A nuisance check is basically, you know, they come up with a bullshit claim and then basically they're looking for 10, 20, $100,000 to go away. And uh, I stopped doing that. Anyone that does it, we go to court, we go to trial. Even if it's a $10,000 settlement, it's going to cost me 50,000 in legal fees. I've sent the message out to all of them. I got the 50,000 to fight this in, in court. Does your client have it? Probably not because you're taking him on a contingency plan because you think I'm just going to write a fast check. So get ready. We're going to court. So you know, things like that. Unfortunately, I grew up with a lot of these people that worked for my dad and they were really good people, but you can't do that in today's industry. I learned a lot about that. And I also learned about my father was very anti-tech down to the fax machine. <laughs> he barely just got to the fax machine before he retired in 2006. But I believe technology is a major component that needs to be addressed and needs to be embraced because hospitality has a history of not embracing technology. And not like the good-looking, sexy stuff like the automat that I just did for Dumpling Shop. I'm talking about software, inventory, technology. Inventory technology right now and food cost technology right now is insane. If the oregano goes up a quarter, just your food cost before the oregano is delivered to your door. That's what kind of technology is out there. And, you know, yeah, the sexy stuff, customers ordering off their phone because that's their cash register. They already did the work for you. Uh, QR codes, which are destroying the self-ordering kiosk because a 10 cent QR code can basically take over for a $10,000 self-ordering kiosk. But I'm just talking about the nitty gritty basement stuff, inventory management, key cost, payroll, human resources, all that stuff can be automated. And there your, your model becomes more efficient, more effective and more successful. I want to dig into tech and innovation, but before we do, I want to stay high level for just a couple of more minutes. You mentioned that when you get sued, if it's a frivolous lawsuit, you've got the $50,000 to fight it. And you've done well. I've done it up to $3 million in legal fees. Mr. Chow sued me in 2012, and he thought I was going to fold. I paid up to $3 million to go to a six-week trial. And finally, when I won, he didn't realize that he sued me in Florida, which is the biggest mistake for bullies. Because if you lose federal or state, you pay my legal fees. He didn't know that. And after he paid $10 million to put me out of business, he had to pay my $3 million too. So I've went as high as $3 million to fight the bullies. Well, and it's amazing that you have that kind of cash on hand. It's one thing to have busy restaurants. I think a lot of people that don't make any money have busy restaurants. But you've managed to make a lot of money. So not only are you running busy locations, successful locations by worldly standards, but they're also highly profitable. What's the difference between the way you do business and the way most folks do business? Well, I always create the concepts not of what has been done in the past and what the consumer is asking for. I'm always looking for what the consumer is asking for. So I'll give you an example how I came up with Brooklyn Shop House. My wife and I would go to a Peter Luger or the Palm or the Old Homestead, which I love those restaurants. But, you know, she doesn't eat beef. She doesn't eat meat. So she's looking at there like she's an orphan there. She's basically looking at like, you know, cream of spinach, baked potato, fish and parsley, or a lobster in a towel. 
and I'm eating a porterhouse dry aged 35 days. I'm, I'm by myself. And I got a smile from here to here. And she's like, I'm just doing this for my husband. And this is like, it's not where she wants to be. So when you, but then when you see like the big boys get started to get really bad reviews, I came up with this word LSD and LSD meant to me, salt and pepper, ginger, garlic, lobster, dry aged porterhouse steak, 35 days. Marry that with authentic Peking duck, not fried, roasted. Because I already got big accolades for my Peking duck when I owned Chinese restaurants for 15 years, notably Philippe Chow. And I said, that would be the ultimate surf and turf. No one has ever done that, where the, the, the co-stars, which are everything but the steak, are just as good as the steak. And if you can do that, we can all of a sudden make the people that are not coming in just for a, a beef or a meat entree feel just as welcome with items that are as good or better, you know, dry-aged steak with some sea salt on it, infrared oven, which is delicious. It's great. But when you marry that to a salt and pepper lobster or a ginger garlic lobster and a Peking duck and a Beijing chicken, and then we went far back, we went to, hey, when it gets down to the appetizers, we're not going to do a cheeseburger. We're going to do bacon cheeseburger shumai, which is an open-faced dumpling. We're going to, instead of doing lobster bisque and French onion soup, we're going to do a French onion soup dumpling, zao bang, like the traditional Chinese soup dumpling, but the fillings are going to be classic diner staples. So we got onto this. We said, oh, wow, this is starting to take form. We're like reinventing, reimagining a chop house, which has been the same for 150 years, give or take. And then when we came up with the menu, we said, this is what's going to happen, guys. Our projections are about $4 million a year down in Five Dye, a lower financial district of Manhattan. That location had never done more than $3 million. So we said $4 million would be a good number. Or we're going to confuse the hell out of everybody, and it's going to be a complete bust. Well, lo and behold, when we opened in 2018, it went gangbusters. We're up to about $8 million in sales because we've reintroduced now a new form of a steakhouse. And that steakhouse is not the traditional size. We're doing Beijing Chinese cooking with an American steakhouse. And cultures are staying true to each other. But when you put them all on one table, we hashtag it all the time. No place on earth. You can get these three items with those dumplings on one table. And the restaurant exploded. And LSD is basically as my hats and whatever. It's all part of my logo now. LSD. And that's the surf and turf that no one can produce by Brooklyn Shop House. You're playing a different game. When I was actively running restaurants, I used to say, I don't want to be the best restaurateur in the world. I want to be the best marketer in the world in the restaurant industry. Because that's the place nobody was. Nobody was competing in marketing. Everybody wanted to have the best food or the lowest price or the highest price or the most innovative this or that. And I only wanted to be a marketer because I knew that, again, this was a greenfield opportunity. And so, I mean, to be candid with you, like you can smell your own and you are a tried and true marketer. And so when you're talking about food, what you're really talking about is positioning. The fact that like when you describe your dumplings, you describe them as mini sandwiches, right? There's a way that you can present your food in a way that makes it more appetizing than just the traditional means. And you've really hit on that. And so I want to talk about marketing and messaging. How do you create these plans? How do you execute them? Do you do it solo? Do you do it with a team? And look, I'm sure the food is great. Restaurants with great food, great beverage, and great service close every single day. So food aside, 
Talk to me about being marketing, a master baby. of marketing. Oh, yeah. It's all about marketing. There's too many great restaurants I go out of business. You know, if someone said to me, hey, I got six different awards for my vodka, and I need you to carry my vodka. I said, great. What's your marketing? What are you doing for marketing? Because I don't even say marketing budget anymore because Grey Goose taught us all a lesson. Give the product away is your best yep. marketing because they, they took over 70% of the market share when Great when Absolute was paying $300 million a year in, in, in like six years. So 75 to $100 million a year in advertising. Grey Goose was spending zero, but they were giving a million dollars worth of bottles away every year. So I said, tell me about your marketing plan. Oh, no, no, you don't understand. We just got all these accolades. I said, and no one's going to call for it at my bar. And my shelf space is very, very valuable. So putting that aside, talking about LSD, we started hashtagging LSD like crazy on Instagram. And let me tell you, it got picked up like 4,000 hashtags in a year. I got a letter from the FBI that said, hey, you're being investigated for the promotion of narcotics. That was marketing legendhood. I got marketing legendhood with that letter. It's framed and it's on my wall because my response to them was an emoji of a lobster steak and a duck and this. And that's exactly what I responded to. And I said, this is amazing. To this day, Instagram has removed hashtag LSD because of us. And that's what I'm talking about when it comes to marketing. And let me tell you another thing, Josh. I don't allow my social media to be handled by anyone but me. And I'll tell you why. I mean, I see a lot of restaurateurs that say, oh, I've got, a, I've got my social media going. But when there's engagement, they outsource it to a third world country or some kind of service answering customers. Customers on your Instagram account or Facebook account are like fish in a barrel. They're interested in your product. They like your product. They want to know about your product. They want to book a reservation. And you're going to give it to an outsourced third world country? No. So there's times where I speak to everyone until I fall asleep at three in the morning. I'm speaking to everyone. And there's one guy who said to me, like, literally last week, he goes, man, I just asked you about your porterhouse, where, you know, where it's from, da, 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 da. And I'm getting this information at three o'clock in the morning. I've got to tell Stratus, man, you guys are amazing. And I took a picture of myself, and I'm wearing pajamas. <laughs> I took a picture of myself, and I sent it to him. I said, you're talking to Stratus. Because get the fuck out. Are you kidding me? You're fucking talking to customers at three in the morning, and, and you own this little mini empire? And I said, listen, I don't take it for granted. That little mini empire is going to disappear if I'm not engaging with my guests. So that's one side of marketing and engagement. Don't allow this computer, don't allow this phone to get you lazy. It's like, you know, before the internet, Josh, you'd have to go to like a haircutting salon or like a family gathering to tell someone about this great restaurant you heard. And 20, 30 people might be affected by it. Today, you could have an 18-year-old kid with 50,000 followers walking or actually talking about your product or interested in your product. And you should do it. So that's one side of it. The other side of it, I'm very bullish on Facebook, Instagram, and Waze. You know, being that we're on the right next to the Brooklyn Bridge, Waze has been extremely profitable for us. Because when you go over the bridge, there's a Brooklyn Chop House logo. It's like a digital sign right on the Brooklyn Bridge. So either if you're walking or driving across the bridge, you see us. And it takes you right to our restaurant. And that's been huge for us. But I will tell you, Instagram advertising and Facebook advertising and SEO marketing, we've got this specialist named Sean. He's our ace in the hole. He handles all our SEO. I'll give you an example. We just opened Brooklyn Chop House in Times Square. There are restaurants that have been there 50 years. Go type steakhouse anywhere 10 miles around that restaurant, and we're number one. And there's restaurants that have been there 30, 40, and 50 years with thousands and thousands and thousands of reviews because they've been there forever. And we just opened. And two months later, we are on the top of every page 
for steakhouse, chop out seafood, lobster, duck, Chinese takeout, Chinese food. We bought, we bought all the keywords possible that are related to our guest experience and our menu and our cuisine. And let me tell you, we look at these analytics. I'll give you an example. We spent about $6,000 on a few keywords a month. And the results are 1,000 reservations, 650 phone calls, 440 people asking for directions, and over like 100 million impressions. And you look at these numbers, and we just keep doubling our advertising budget. Because $6,000, if you do the math, drop me in like $375,000 in sales. It's six grand. So if you're not taking SEO seriously, if you're not buying keywords, if you're not taking Facebook, Instagram, and let me tell you, you don't need a lot of money to do it. Every time you post an Instagram thing, put $50 on it. Put 100 bucks on it. Every time you do a TikTok, and believe me, you're going to get that money back tenfold. And that's how we started. We started with a few hundred dollars. And now we're in the four or $500,000 a year range for all our brands, just on SEO, Facebook, Instagram, and Waze. And I believe we're making millions off it. Let's talk about your book. You wrote a book called Be a Disruptor, providing lessons from your life and your career. I mean, it seems like it's a pretty busy time, right? Coming out of a global pandemic. Why take the time to write a book? That's exactly what I did. I actually wrote two books. I wrote Damn Good Dumplings and Be a Disruptor because I had too much downtime on my hands. You know, the one thing I feel great about is we fed 8,400 healthcare workers in 19 hospitals from March 2020 to June 2020. I will tell you, I had a lot of time to reflect. As much as I was doing my philanthropy hat, I started writing about things. And if I got to tell you, for the last 15 years, because I, you know, back in the 90s, people would always ask, is this guy mobbed up? How come he's not paying royalty? How come he's not paying taxes to the mob? How come like this guy is hanging out with like the most powerful people? This guy's Greek, but how is this guy? It was a lot of like skeptic, like a lot of, lot of gossip. So for the last 15 years, people are like, you know, you should write a book. This is an interesting way on how your path was molded from late 80s to present time. I got it. I've been writing notes for years. I think it'll be my memoir when I'm in my 60s or 70s. But Simon and & Schuster and Skyhorse came, came calling and they said, listen, we've seen a lot of your interviews. We're starting to learn about your history. There's a business book that has to come out of this. And that business book that has to come out of it is instead of supported by analytics, should be supported by true stories. And that's what I did. I wrote a business book wrapped around a memoir. But everything that I wrote about is not supported by analytics. It's supported by true real-life stories backing up my claim or backing up my success or backing up my failure. And that's how Be A Disruptor was created. And I'm really proud of it because it was no holds barred. It's a very truthful book, good or bad. I put myself down. I talk about my flaws and I talk about other people too. And you know what? It's just my book to my future Morphogen generations. And I want them to understand that, you know what? Business is a constant thing. And this was my journey. There's a tone to the book. And one of the tones that you get is frustration and frustration with the industry and where we are and how we got there. Because I think there are a lot of people that didn't see this coming, but it's very obvious through the tales you tell in the book that you did and that you chose to go a, a very different route. And as I'm reading the book, I'm chatting with a buddy of mine and we're talking about a local coffee shop around the corner. And I was explaining to him, like, I don't understand why they have a cashier. It makes no sense to me. It does not add to the hospitality experience. This is a transaction. 
I want coffee. You'll give me coffee and then I'll go away. That's it. At the end of the day, I'm not looking for an unforgettable beverage experience. I just want a cup of coffee. And it seems like we're still struggling even today to separate what is transactional from what is experiential. And I think it's a great opportunity for you to talk about that high level and then to get into the manifestation of your theory, which is the automat. Yeah. So everything you're saying right now is just transactional to me was the automat. So and the dumplings became a huge success at Brooklyn Chop House. And I had told my partners in 2019, I want to do a two ounce dumpling, a two ounce sandwich shop. And they're like, what's a two ounce sandwich shop? You know, Katz's Deli is 20 ounces. What does that mean? I said, come on, guys, we're going to do a dumpling shop. We're going to do peanut butter and jelly. We're going to do bacon cheeseburger. We're going to do lamb gyro. We're going to do bacon, egg and cheese croissant, which I just patented croissant shaped dumpling. And basically on and on and on and on. I said, that dumpling to me is a sandwich. So let's create a sandwich shop with sandwich fillings and sandwich dinner staples, but put in a dumpling. But then when we got down to the experience, I said, yes, this is, now QSR is transactional, but they're doing it all wrong. I love the automat. And the reason why the automat failed was because technology in the 70s failed the automat. What I mean by that is this, the automat was up to 800,000 meals a day, horn and harder, were the founders of the automat. 1910 to 1970, it went gangbusters. Like 73, it started to collapse because it was the rise of fast food, the rise of inflation, and there were no dollar bill receivers. There was no credit card access to that vending machine. You had to wait online for like 40 quarters to feed your, you know, feed your two kids and your wife. And you had to go wait online again and put the quarters in and get the food. And of course, Burger King bought the last one in Hard at Automats and they converted them to Burger Kings and by 77. There was one left till 1990. But the Automat was done because technology failed. I saw a couple of incarnations of reincarnations of the Automat and they were getting it wrong too. They were making the whole restaurant wall-to-wall Automat, like Itza, for example. Itza basically created an Automat that was wall-to-wall. And I didn't think the menu of just veganism is going to work for the Automat. Because these people are like really like, they don't want to have a relationship with a piece of metal. You know, it didn't go together. But it's something like a dumpling shop where it's a sandwich and it's on the go and the consumer's controlling it from their cash register. Their cash register is a smartphone. I mean, especially the TikTok generation from 13 to 30, they live on their phones. I got three daughters in that age group. They don't want to talk to me. They live on their phones. So how are we not creating a restaurant speaking to that generation? And we see it now. So where people are, you know, when we, we have a restaurant where the restaurant basically is catering to like a 35 and over crowd, well, I got to tell you, we need a greeter there because half of them are walking out. But then when we open near a university, they come in and they've already pre-ordered on their phone. They ordered ahead. They put their time. They got their receipt. They got their QR code on their phone. They walk in and they go like this to the greeter. They're like, we're good. And they come in, they scan their phone, and they're in and out in 10 seconds. Now, the industry norm was four to six minutes, and you've got a gold mine. We get you out in 10 to 20 seconds. As fast as you can scan your phone, you're out. And you don't need to speak to anyone. And that's really speaking to the TikTok generation. So with the cool concept of a dumpling that resembles a sandwich, like chicken parmesan and buffalo chicken and Tex-Mex, these are some of our new versions, hot fudge sundae and a dumpling. Now, as we did all this, we knew that crowd is not going to really want to sit there and talk to a cashier. We don't need cashiers in our industry anymore. 
and we don't even need self-ordering kiosks anymore. Like McDonald's is all up on the self-ordering kiosk. Well, to me, a self-ordering kiosk is a fax machine. It's already a dinosaur. The cash registers that are there are the people's smartphones. That's their cash, that's their POS system. They just bought it for you. So hence, why do we have a choice now between hardware, which costs $10,000 for a self-ordering kiosk, their competition today, Josh, is a 10 cent Xerox copy of a QR code. Can you imagine that 10 cent Xerox copy is your competition? When either I'm going to buy your machine for 10 grand or spend 50 bucks one time and then print it at 10 cents and put it in a frame and put it up on everything that's printed in my restaurant. Guess what the kids are doing? They don't even want to touch the boards. We're going to have four for every dumpling shop. Now we got it down to two. We may just bring it down to one and a beautiful QR code in a nice frame on a stand or on the wall, those kids know exactly what to do when they see it. So why interrupt them? This is what they want. Why interrupt them? So with all that said, the menu, the guest experience, the technology, and bringing the power back to the consumer and us staying out of their way was how Brooklyn Dumpling Shop was created and how it's thrived now. We'll have about 200 contracts in the next six months worldwide for franchising. I'm not keeping the franchising business is off the charts. Let's talk off about that. You can scale in a variety of ways. Why did you choose franchising? Because we're using other people's money. Here's your choice. You own more equity and then you allow the franchisees to build them out or you go and sell off half your company for $10, $20 million and then you basically own them all yourself. My height of Philippe Chow, I had about nine restaurants in like three different countries. And I will tell you, it was torture. It was torture. Unless you have like $20 million in the bank, that's not a model that I would suggest to any restaurant to a small business owner. Go to the franchise market, team up with, and don't let them buy your franchises with a credit card. We only deal with high net worth individuals with at least a million dollars in liquidity. You know, we, we, you know, many people are coming, hey, can I just, you know, I got high school friends calling, hey, can I buy it by the railroad station where we grew up? And I'm like, no, unless you got a million dollars in liquid assets, and I don't want to speak to them because you know what? That's the first move you got to do. You can't take everything on and have them start failing because they're undercapitalized or they just don't understand it. We're dealing with hedge funds, people that have 50 units, uh, people that have 25 QSRs. We're only dealing with very high net worth individuals. And the ones that don't have experience have a ton of money to hire the right people. Because I got to tell you, with three employees, you can open a Brooklyn dumpling shop. And that industry norm is like seven to eight. So it's a really cool model. It's like a restaurant on training wheels. If you want to get into the food service business, which I've told a lot of people, put your money in mutual funds, don't invest in restaurants. Well, today I tell them, if you're ever going to do it, Brooklyn Dumpling Shop is the one to do because it's so easy. And the systems are like Dan Rose, our partner at France Parts, said, you know, these guys have systems in place, like they have 2,000 stores open. And we only have a few stores open, but we have one store basically opening every three weeks in 22. That's incredible. Talk to me about the NFT projects you're working on. We're going to be launching the first private supper club in Times Square, two levels below the ground of Brooklyn Chop House, which is a five-story restaurant, 25,000 feet and 700 seats with a rooftop. But sub-level two is going to be NFT private members-only supper club called Brooklyn Chop House. So what are we doing here? NFTs were designed for like the location finder and the business card. Well, NFTs were designed for music and art. I'm like, no. NFT is designed for hospitality because what we're doing now is we have three NFT tokens, three NFTs, 
And basically one is about, I'll do it in US currency. One is 8,000, one is 25,000, and one is 100,000 they can purchase in Ethereum. And basically each one of them gives you a different level of service. 8,000 gives you admission into the private club. 25,000 gives you X amount of reservation and access to celebrity events. $100,000 gives you car service to and from the airport, car service to, chauffeured car service to and from your hotel. You also will be available to have catering at your private plane. So we did that for a hundred grand. And basically now what we've done is take the token, the digital token, and we've actually now put hospitality attached to it and people could buy different services. And wow, 25,000 is a lot. I can go to Soho House and pay five grand. Great. So you pay five grand every year and you got nothing to sell. My $25,000 token that's going to treat you like a king and your guests. And it's going to be just for NFT crypto people that it's going to be the community of crypto down there. You can resell it on the blockchain two, three, five, six years from now. You can resell it. It's almost like an asset. We're giving you something tangible or something you can actually resell whenever you want. And we get 10% of the resale. And we won't allow them to sell it at a discount, keeping integrity inside our product. The restaurant industry is filled with unspoken rules and traditions and how things should be done. How would you like to see the industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? The best word you just said in that was should. Should. There's no such thing as should. But that's but you're right. Hospitality has always been late to the uh, technology game. They've always been late to it. They, they don't embrace it. Um, somebody just called me a yuppie asshole that steals jobs for Brooklyn Dumpling Show. They said it in front of 1,600 people in Vegas. And the commentator said, hey, no profanity. That's uncalled for. I said, no, 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 no. Let them say it. There's a hundred more people that agree with this guy. So let me answer it. I said, let me answer it. You're probably the same person when you were driving down the Long Island Expressway in New York yesterday. And all of a sudden, when you didn't have to stop anymore for the toll booth, you probably were like, oh, those toll booth clerks all lost their jobs. Ah, oh, this is crazy. So now let me ask you something. And the guy even said, yes, that was me. Because I don't believe people should lose their jobs with robots. I said, okay, great. Now that you've experienced for two years driving right through at 30 miles an hour into the Midtown Tunnel or, or the George Washington Bridge, and you've been doing it now for two years at 30 miles an hour, would you want to go back to waiting 30 minutes online, giving a $20 bill, taking $10 and change, and proceed through the crossing? Or do you like this new system where you just whiz right through it nonstop, and they're scanning your license plate or your easy pass? And then everybody started applauding, like, you know, hey, checkmate. Because if that's what you're interested in, then you're never going to be a successful entrepreneur in any industry. Because if you don't embrace technology, you're going to never succeed at a level that you're capable of succeeding in. I said, we don't need Tobu clerks. I wrapped it up like this. We don't need cashiers. And we don't need home plate umpires in baseball. Because look at tennis. Tennis got it right. That ball hits the line, outside the line, boom. You know, we're at 130 mile an hour surge, you know exactly where the ball hit. How are we not doing that in baseball? They have the technology. So to me, those are the three things that are passionate to me. <laughs> and I like to drive 30 miles an hour through the tunnels. I do a lot of driving and I don't like cashiers because we should not entertain the idea of logistical staffing, cashiers and things like that. And now what I'm doing with my fine dining restaurants, Josh, I'm actually implementing the automatic to my fine dining restaurant. So well, how are you doing that? Well, the focus is takeout, delivery, and drivers. The takeout, delivery, and the drivers. Takeout and deliver, takeout and pick up from customers and, and then the drivers picking up their food. 
I don't want these guys coming into my restaurant. I don't want the delivery drivers coming into my restaurant. I have a beautiful restaurant. People are well-dressed. And I've got 10 drivers there that are not hygienically hygienically appropriate and not dressed appropriate. And they're sitting there waiting for their food to go amongst well-dressed customers. So now I put the automat flush with the curb. And now the driver is going to get their QR code. And let's just say you, you had a rough night last night. You know, you don't want to get dressed up and get a to-go meal. So you just want to go pick up something and you want to wear like your sweatpants. Well, you can do it now, ordering off for a web you get a qr code you don't have to come in the restaurant you scan your phone the locker opens from the outside you pick it up and you go now on the business side of it again now we're allowing the consumer to do it on their time but the other thing is if you go to the brooklyn shop house tonight where i don't have the automat there because the landmark buildings are having difficulties in one of our stores putting in the automat there's five people stapling bags there's five people saying uber gets this josh gets that joe gets this mike gets this I don't need any of it anymore. It goes directly from the runners in the kitchen and it goes right to the back of the automat. I've cut out like five jobs. So at the end of the day, when people say I'm the yuppie asshole, which I was really actually happy, you know, I was cool with the yuppie part, you know, the yuppie asshole stealing jobs. I said, at the end of the day, if you know the facts about failure in our industry, seven out of 10 restaurants fail within 30 months. And the number one reason is payroll. And this is before COVID. This is, I just can't meet payroll. That's why you don't see too many 7-Elevens close because, you know, one employee on a slow 7-Eleven can still cut it. Use technology. And if you can get the payroll from 32%, which is the average, and sometimes it goes as high as 40% when you're about to give in the keys, if you could drop that to 15 to 18%, those 7 out of 10 restaurants are not just going to survive. They're going to thrive. And if we do that, even though we have four employees instead of eight or nine, we're going not, not to just save that entrepreneur or that brand. We're going to save an industry. We are going to save an industry if we can lock the payroll in half. And remember, here's another restaurant institution data fact. For every one hospitality job that's lost, 10 non-hospitality jobs are lost. You factor all that math in, those 7 out of 10 restaurants that will survive with my model, with half the staff, will actually do more than just save jobs. It'll save an industry. That's Stratus Maforgan. For more on his concepts, visit brooklynchophouse.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.